This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Good morning, afternoon, and where you are, I guess. This is Todd Vo, the host of EM Weekly. Today I have with me a special guest, uh, David Cochran. And David's book is Beyond the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in, in the Pandemic. And, and here it is, and there's a good picture. I'll tell you something. That's one thing that we, we forget when it comes to the, the pandemic. Oh, I shouldn't say forget, but sometimes overlook, is the fact that the frontline people that are out there uh, running the calls, doing what they have to do, uh, masking up every day, still out there doing it. And uh, when we're looking at this, uh, running the uh, this crisis, right, uh, we do have a bunch of frontline people, nurses, doctors, paramedics, EMTs that are on the front line doing this. And David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this book while you were still running calls. Uh, tell me about that process for you uh, as far as like why you decided to write this book and what it meant to you. <clears throat> yeah. So while I was in New York City and South Texas uh, for my FEMA deployments uh, throughout this pandemic, uh, we were running rampant 16 calls a day, 24 hour shifts, 40 days in a row. So we didn't really have much free time and um, there wasn't really much time to kind of process what we were dealing with. So at night, you know, I always kind of wrote in my notes kind of like what I went through that night or what I went through that day for that shift to kind of just my own, it was my own way of working out my own thing. So uh, by the end of these deployments, I just had notes and notes full of these different experiences and these different things we went through. And uh, so when I got back, I thought it was a good opportunity to use these events that I experienced and put them into a chronological order so that a reader could go through the events with me as if they were experiencing it, like what it's like to be an EMS frontline worker throughout the pandemic. And uh, I felt like it was a good way to really share the full, unfiltered, horrific experiences that EMS has been going through. Yeah, I was talking to Eric McNulty yesterday from MPLI, and we were discussing um, what are some of the things that um, public health could do uh, working with emergency management and and what are some of the things that we could do to work together uh, regarding, you know, just try to figure things out, I guess, at the general, at the, at the, at the top level here. And what I told him though, I said, look, one of the things that public health, I think fails to do, and, and uh, it's a generalization. So I know uh, system, some systems are, are different, right. But one of the things that we, we fail to do is we, li- they fail to listen to uh, the people on the ground. Right. And that's those the frontline workers, the EMTs and paramedics that when we start to see weird trends <clears throat> in running calls, um, and we push that information up. Sometimes they don't want to look at it until it's data-driven um, and not anecdotal-driven. Um, what were you guys seeing on the field uh, before before the pandemic broke, right? Before the you know tradition March when it came to the United States. <clears throat> um, as far as like the initial months or weeks leading up to the pandemic, like what yeah. we were talking about. Yeah. So it was kind of we weren't really talking about it at all. I mean, my state we. There was no mandates like, hey, keep a lookout for this. It literally wasn't until like that first case in Seattle that, especially in my, I'm out in Philadelphia. So um, in my region, uh, 
it wasn't until it first came into, I believe, it was Seattle that they said, all right, the virus is here. Uh, time to mask up and so on, so on and so forth. But before that, no talks about it, no uh, issues of N95s, no uh, gowning for any patients that may be susceptible to it. And not to mention, we really didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know the symptoms that were going on with it. So I guess, to be fair, there wasn't really much to work with in the initial weeks leading up to it. So we, you're pretty much running through a, a normal flu season at that point, running those right. respiratory illnesses, but you weren't sure uh, if this uptake in calls was caused between the COVID or was between right. the, the regular flu, right? Exactly, yeah. So when when you started getting this and when the word came down that, okay, now we have this this uh, pandemic crisis coming, right? We, we see it coming across the world. What was the feel on the guys? What, what I mean, everybody worked on the ground. What was their feeling of it? And, you know, was it just, hey, business as usual, or now we're taking extra precautions? You know, kind of where were you guys going with that? So it was a little nerve-wracking right off the start uh, because, one, we were very short on equipment. We didn't have the equipment we needed, so they were tossing out the new uh, uh, policies to where you could use your N95 for an extended period of time instead of just a one-time use you could you could uh, reuse, uh, you know, your shields. You just have to wipe them down properly, with, and so on and so forth. And but we were very short on equipment. We didn't have enough gowns. Uh, we didn't have. Um, well, we had gloves. There was one other thing we were short on. Forget, but looking back. But anyway, so we were heading into these households, and as symptoms started coming out, we were dealing with a patient, you know, who had presented with pink eye and or pain in the side, and we didn't think that was associated with the virus. And then, of course, the next morning we wake up and it's on the news, pink eye and pain in the sides associated with the virus. So we went into these households not protected well enough because we just assumed it had nothing to do with the virus we were dealing with until the next morning, and it was too late at that point. And then for those patients that were experiencing symptoms, like I said, we were facing short uh, equipment supplies and obviously still learning as we went along. So it was a little nerve wracking kind of going into the households. And, and we were like, we had like a live group message where, you know, we went in and as soon as we heard something new, we sent to the group message, hey, they're dealing with this. This person's dealing with that. Keep on the lookout for this and so on. Talk about that for a minute. The group message. Who started that? And was it official channels or was it just the the street guys that were uh, talking that way? Street guys. Uh, we were in the office the, the, before the start of our shift and we were all talking, you know, obviously all anyone could talk about Melfield because it was on the rise. And we were talking about how we could help each other kind of move it because, um, you know, we weren't getting, I'm not going to throw management under the bus, but we weren't getting too many heads up because, you know, there wasn't really much to update, you know, until it came on the news or CDC announced something new. Um, so we were like, okay, how can we get ahead of this? Because, you know, we're typically seeing the symptoms before anyone else's uh, because we're dealing with it right away. Um, so uh, that's how we started the group chat. It was uh, one of my coworkers, and there's about 10 of us in it. Um, and then, you know, those who weren't in the group message when we were at the office later that night, uh, we would kind of share with what we were doing with management and whatnot so they could uh, pass along the word. What was the mood of the public, the people who you're treating, like when you guys are starting to run this? I mean, was there fear? Was it, you know, just kind of t- talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was a lot of fear because uh, as the lockdown started going into place, especially there's a lot of increased isolation. So people were by themselves and all they had was what they were seeing on the news. And it was a lot of the news focused heavily on the death and the severe side effects of it. So naturally, a lot of people were very afraid. So when we were going to the households, we actually became like educators and almost like therapists uh, to an extent, uh, helping people, giving them comfort, let them know like, okay, 
yes, there are some superior uh, reactions to it, but you also can have this in minor and, and kind of talk them off that ledge a little bit to calm them down and kind of give that reassurance that they're not alone and we're here for them and we're going to help them and, and uh, provide them with what they need to look forward to or look, look for going forward. Uh, what was your biggest challenge in the early days of the, of the pandemic? Uh, the educating, like I said, uh, we would a standard call where, you know, they had a cough and then they thought they were dying or, you know, they, like I said, the pink eye and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of, we would have to sit there for 20, 30 minutes at a time, which keep in mind, especially in the early stages when we were in New York city, there was, we had 900 calls pending at a time for the first three days straight. So people were waiting nine to 12 hours just for an ambulance to show up some days. Uh, just because of the over the call volume because of everyone, you know, as soon as they get that initial cough, they start panicking and call. So we were kind of sitting there for 20, 30 minutes at a time, just educating them on all the signs and symptoms. And we were literally teachers for, for the first half of our calls, you know, before the symptoms started ramping up a little bit more severe. So let's talk about that 900 calls waiting. Um, I mean, I knew when I worked in, in EMS during a, <clears throat> during a pretty, pretty busy flu season, um, uh, about, it feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, we, you know, we would we call stand on the wall when we'd bring our patients to stand on the wall waiting for a bed. Um, yep. What was the what was the turnover time like bringing people to the emergency room for for the people working on the street? That was horrific. For the first seven day or for the first week in New York City, we had wall time standby times of seven hours of waiting in the ER which was horrible because they had no beds. So some hospitals, they got on top of it that when we pulled up with the ambulance, they had all their equipment on wheels and they converted the ambulance into ambulance uh, uh, room into a ER room. And then they just slapped on a number and said, this is room 48 or whatever, until that patient was good to kind of walk out or they could find a bed in the hospital to get them to. So again, we had crews like Put in perspective, New York City gets about 4,000 calls a day on average. They were getting about 7,500 a day uh, for these two weeks straight. So a lot of calls are waiting and a lot of crews are getting taken off the street because they were sitting at the hospitals. I think the longest I personally did was four and a half hours. But there were crews that reported seven hours, nine hours, just depending on which region you're in. So we like shift. Huh? That's like a whole oh, shift. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, that's how we ended up working. We initially went into it. We were assigned uh 12 hour shifts every day um and uh but they ended up turning into 16 sometimes 24 hours because we couldn't we couldn't just go to bed because we can't just leave all these people stranded so we were just working overtime after overtime it really started to catch up after a while so what was the search capacity like when we started opening the field hospitals and things like that i mean did that really help out with that the wall time or was that more for icu patients uh, like you're talking when they opened up like the tents and they brought in like the ship in New York and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you know, we thought it was going to open it up, but it was kind of chaotic with how it was organized. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the reports when the ship came in, it only ended up using about 25% capacity before it was sent out three weeks later. Um, and they initially had a plan where it was COVID negative patients were going to go there. Well, naturally, two days later, COVID positive we got in there and the whole ship was turned into a COVID unit. Um, but it did help because it kind of allowed, so we did obviously the 911 transports and then we did the, um, inner facility transports. So it helped with the inner facility transports because obviously they were allowed to get these uh, patients into the hospital beds. And then obviously we can move the emergency patients up into the rooms upstairs. Um, so the turnover time definitely helped out our, our wait times, the ER certainly went down as the weeks went on. 
Uh, but uh, it took a little bit of time. I'll take a quick break. When we come back, I want to kind of talk about how the process of getting EMTs and paramedics and nurses, for that matter, from other parts of the country into uh, into the cities or places that needed to have uh, additional help. We all know emergency management is dynamic. What you need to know and do can cover all kinds of fields and change on a dime. When choosing a partner, you want someone just as dynamic to help you keep up. The Mid-Atlantic Center for Emergency Management Public Safety is just that, a FEMA partner and one-stop shop for college academics, custom training and consulting. They cover it all and bring you the best of each. So whether you're looking to start your degree, go back to school, train your people, or anything in between, they're here for you. See what you can build together at frederick.edu backslash M-A-C-E-M-P-S. That's M-A-C-E-M-P-S. Worn by law enforcement, fire, and EMS professionals for a generation, 511 apparel and accessories are built to provide unmatched reliability and performance when it matters most. From no-melt, no-drip apparel to task-specific EMS gear and their patented patrol duty uniform along with duty-specific footwear. 511 Public Safety Gear provides superior power, mobility, and versatility in harsh and unforgiving situations. Precision engineered from modern materials and crafted with input from the end users in the field. And you can count on the craftsmanship, quality, and utility of 511 first responder apparel and accessories. Your job is hard enough. Don't settle for good enough. 511 Public Safety Gear gives you the edge you need to respond effectively. Power outages can happen at any time. Is your community prepared? The Power Up Solar Power Charging Trailer can be used to address the need for temporary power for your community. In addition, the Power Up Solar Power Charging Trailer can provide a platform to support your public information and community resiliency outreach efforts throughout the year to educate and inform people about the need to always be ready. For more information, visit PowerUpConnect.com. That is PowerUpConnect.com. The Outer Limit Supply Company was founded on the idea of providing high-quality first aid kits. Their goal is to supply the life-saving equipment you'll need to mitigate the majority of injuries often seen during austere times. From minor injury on an outdoor adventure with your family to your team responding to a major traumatic event, Outer Limit Supply has the kits to manage most situations, providing practical, user-friendly first aid kits that anyone can use. Enter EM Weekly, all capitals, at checkout and save 20% off your total purchase. Go to www.outerlimitsupply.com today. That's outerlimitsupply.com. Hey, welcome back for the quick break. Because without them, without those sponsors, we couldn't bring you the content that we're bringing here today. And David, before we left for the break, kind of talked about like how the process was because you're a Philadelphia guy. Uh, you're not a New York State EMT, or at least you weren't, and or or Texas for that matter for, for where you went. Yes. What was the reciprocity process like? And and like when you got tapped into going to other cities, um, I mean, was there training that happened? I mean, like what what talk talk about that process? So um, so I'm the National Emergency Response Team. 
So I'm with FEMA. Uh, so we're kind of used to this process. We have a bag packed in the car at all times. So we got the call two hours later for New York City. It was a short drive for, for me, obviously, in 90 minutes. So we hopped in the ambulance and we headed up. Uh, they had this whole check-in process. We just got our IDs. No instructions were 20 minutes after check-in. We're slapped with a radio, said you're heading to the Queensboro or, or Manhattan, you know, whichever one you were assigned to. Uh, me, I think I was South Bronx for the first 14 days. Um, and just, hey, rely on your GPS uh, maps, you know, ask instructions from like literally had to ask. We showed up to a lot of apartment complexes where we had no idea how to get in, where to enter. So we would have to like wait for people to walk in and out be like, hey, we're EMS. How do we get to this room? Because uh, we're not familiar. And uh, so it was a lot of help with this isn't kind of to get through a lot of it. Um, and then they gave us packets every morning of you know, where different hospitals were looking, which hospitals were on diversion, which was awful because we had sometimes in my borough where we had six hospitals that were on diversion. So we were having to travel to other boroughs like 45 minutes away to get patients. So it was uh, every day. It was just a new learning. There was something new and another curveball that we had to kind of keep up with. What was, what area was, I mean, not that when I say this, it doesn't mean like which one was better, but which one was like a, like a harder place to work, Texas or, 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 or New York? or uh, New, New York, because uh, the, the call volume and the amount of congestion obviously that comes with that city so that you were working in tight quarters every time and up and down apartments. But the environment in Texas was way more harsh. I mean, we dealt with a hurricane while we were there. Uh, not to mention we dealt with uh, mosquitoes and heat waves of a hundred some uh, degrees. And it was uh, definitely a rougher environment to work in, uh, but both had their own little things to get through. So during this time, like you said in the beginning, you started writing down your notes at the end of the day. And it, was, it seemed to be, as I read through your book, it was, it was kind of like more cathartic for you uh, as yeah. a way to just uh, mind dump. Um, you know, well, when you're writing that process, I mean, what was that for you? Like, does it, does it just get off your chest what, you, what you're feeling? Or um, is it, did you think you're going to write a book out of this? Yeah, at the time, oh, excuse me, at the time when I was writing, um, it was more or less just to kind of break things down for me to, to process. Like I said, we were seeing 16 calls a day and we were, especially in New York, we were seeing some pretty uh, uh, rough things uh, throughout it. Because, you know, on top of COVID, you also dealt with the New York City stabbings and shootings and apartment fires. And my first night there, I saw a drive-by shooting, massive apartment complex fire and a stabbing all on my first day there. And so, like, it was kind of a way to break that down also while keeping up with the, uh, the COVID calls. Um, but then, you know, as I started getting along, I, you know, I started to realize that the media has done a great job of kind of uh, gaining appreciation for EMS and first responders, uh, but they don't really dive into what we're experiencing and the emotional toll we take. So I felt like these stories were a good way to not only share with what exactly we deal with, but then also give an opportunity for the public to kind of get a sense of that emotional and physical toll that, you know, pandemic or not pandemic times, some of these calls can take on us. <clears throat> even prior to this pandemic, you know, some of the things that we would deal with in EMS was the concept of burnout versus rust out. And I'm assuming, you know, that a lot of the people that were running on these calls were probably more leaning towards that burnout side of things. Yeah. Um, what was the burnout rate uh, for EMS? And, uh, you know, what, what was being done by administration to combat that? So the burnout rate was kind of tough because it was, I mean, we had like the, the COVID policies where if you were positive or sick, you had to sit out for two weeks. Uh, so it was kind of tough to keep with the burnout. 
um, as far as like getting through the initial part of it. Cause a lot of people were sick and like, it was like, Hey, as soon as you're better, you have to come back. We need you. But then once it kind of started to slow down, like, uh, you know, after those first initial months and we started to get a better handle on it. Um, yeah, we actually, we actually put out, we, my face alone was desperately trying to find people because, um, well, actually I'll use the South Texas base as a better example. They were so short staffed during the peak of this that they only had, they started out with their typical uh, base would have 30 employees. They only had five employees at one point and they couldn't even fuel a truck on Wednesdays. So thank God we were there because if we weren't there to help out, they would have had no EMS service in that county uh, on Wednesdays. Uh, so they put out a massive advertisement to just like try to like, and even for us, they said, if you're at the hospital, have you seen like, Hey, we need help at this County, uh, this office. And, uh, you know, it was a smaller County. Um, I forget the exact population, but you know, that, that could have been a few thousand people that, that didn't have EMS, uh, if, if they didn't get more people. So. Absolutely. Mark, um, just chimed in. He says early in, in his County, he's from New York. Um, they were dedicated to the ALS unit that runs involving patients with COVID symptoms, carefully screened at dispatch level, and then crews upon arrival. Uh, they, we, we managed to keep our infection rate low uh, in comparison with other counties in the state. As with everything else in emergency response life, size up and decision-making um, and more size up. Uh, so, yeah, basically, you're absolutely right, Mark. I mean, the size up, seeing size up on these things is important. And I think we forget about this sometimes when we're looking at, like, you know, flu-like symptoms that we, you know, we don't use our our, our uh, the ability to size up that scene in the patient assessment sometimes uh, is, is lacking. But that's a good point, Mark. You know, and, and, and go, so going back into the to the mental portion of this, the, the psychological person for the first responders, um, I mean, I know we, we saw a lot of stuff um, on the news um, about the nurses, right? The overworked nurses, and absolutely, right? I mean, they're there right. doing what they're doing. Uh, but it, we didn't really talk about the overworked paramedics. And you're, and I was reading some articles just recently. Uh, I know South Carolina, I think it is, is having some problems. Connecticut is having some serious issues uh, for EMS. Um, you know, you're seeing those areas, the, those two that I saw uh, stories on. Are we seeing this across the board with, with EMS? Are we seeing people kind of, second guessing their career choice and do it moving on to something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my base alone, I've already had a few of my good friends. They've moved on to different careers because it's kind of, it's exhausting when you, you, again, when we went through New York and we go through all this stuff, especially this past year, and then we're still walking in these households and they're still, you know, we're getting spit on and we're getting cursed at, and it just kind of makes you feel underappreciated and, not to mention the pay is not where you'd want it to be. Uh, so there's, <laughs> so there's, I've already lost a few friends that not lost, but they've moved on to other careers that, that, uh, you know, they feel like they're, they're better suited for. Oh. No, absolutely. And that's, that's a shame, you know, with the being an EMT, being a paramedic, um, you, you know, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the, the pay, uh, is, is never been that, uh, uh, that great in certain areas, you know. It's yeah. funny we're we're talking about today, you know, the minimum wage type thing of being fifteen dollars an hour, and you've seen, you know, here in California where I'm at today, where there's some protests going on for fast food workers wanting their their pay to be up to be fifteen to twenty five dollars an hour to right. work at McDonald's. Um, you know, it would be nice to get EMS to get paid at least that. You know, that mind uh, that. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's it's interesting to see that you know some of these guys are out there that are that are doing it. You know, frontline people are. Are, are making less than $10 an hour. So 
<clears throat> I mean, I, I know it's going up in places, but that's just the, the reality of the nation and, and, and how they see uh, EMS at this point. And I think we should do more uh, to, to really increase their visibility of, of what really it is to be EMS. You know, they, they, uh, they, they tend to not get paid the best and, and they work the hardest out there. That's for sure. And, and to, to build on that with not getting paid enough, that means they're having to work a lot of, or especially if you have kids and a mortgage to keep up with, a lot of medics and EMTs with families, they're working 60, 70 hours a week every week because they have to keep up with their bills. So they're working crazy hours and just running on fumes by the end of the week uh, just, you know, because as a, as a result of, you know, trying to keep up with their bills from their pay and whatnot. So there's a lot that just factors into, when, you know, when an EMT medic walk through you know, your front door, there's a lot of baggage that comes with them. Oh, absolutely. And you know, the thing yeah. is too, is working as many hours and, and as many shifts they do. I mean, there's also, I mean, realistically some bad decisions that can be made just due to, uh, to the fact they're tired. So, oh, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that has to be done. You know, we have to do more really, we, we do like those of us here that are in the man- management, you know, we are, uh, you know, emergency management professionals here. We have to do more to, to help out with, uh, those frontline EMS workers and, and getting them the support and the uh, what they need out there. And I think that we should uh, get behind this for sure. Um, talk about your book for a bit. You know, we, we got on here and talk about some stuff, your book, you're the process that you went through it and whatnot, but you know, how can people find, find this book? Yeah. So the book is on my website at davidscochran.com. Uh, it's also through Amazon in ebook and paperback form. Uh, and the big thing I wanted to do with this book is obviously share the stories and the feelings that we go through, but and and shine a light on the EMS community. Uh, but it also I was able to partner with the Firefighters and EMS Foundation uh, to donate a portion of every book. And I actually just made my first uh, donation the other day, so that was a good feeling because uh, they're here to help out. Uh, you know, uh, first responders that deal with a sudden illness or injury and having trouble paying for the medical bills uh, that uh, contributes uh, uh, upwards of ten thousand dollars to those who need it. That's good. Oh, that's fantastic. That that is yeah. that is awesome that you're doing that. And thank you for that. And I do I read the book, read through it, and it's, it's really well written. Uh I know that you're a writer in general and you've written some other things as well. Um talk about your other writings that you do because you I know that you are you write uh, fiction books as well, right? Yes, yes. So I actually have a fictional thriller series. I released that first book. It's a five book series. I released the first book of that one uh back in October. Second one's coming out here in uh, two months or so, but it's uh, it goes off. The, it runs with the idea of you know what if all fifty states seceded from the federal government and run it under their own state law. So governors become presidents, state lines become country borders, and it kind of runs with that thriller aspect that you know there's going to be territorial disputes. You know you're going to have some countries that are going or states that are going to want to expand their territories. So it's going to lead to battles. You're also going to deal with the economical side. There's going to be some economies that are failing or thriving. And then it kind of builds out into the world aspect of it. And then it follows like a, a simple family along with the politicians, like multiple different storylines. So you can kind of see the effects on the ground level that something like this may take place uh, all the way up to the, the top heads. Um, but uh, the interesting part about this book is the first three chapters in the book actually ended up happening in real life because the first three chapters were kind of like uh, these fiery riots leading up to an election. And there's a lot of conspiracy going on. And then obviously three months after I released it, we saw that in real life. So that was uh, kind of interesting. Okay. Stop predicting the future because uh, that, that'll. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> but that's awesome. You know what, David, you know, thank you so much for, for, for being on here and sharing your stories. You know, thank yeah. you for writing this book behind the mask, untold stories of EMS and a pandemic, because it, it is, it, it is untold stories. You know, our nurses, our doctors, our paramedics, our EMTs, you know, respiratory therapists, I mean, even oh, yeah. down to, to the, the janitors that are, are, and I don't mean to say down as it's, it's demeaning ways, but I'm talking about the levels of, of responsibility of patient care, you know, um, are, are all impacted by, uh, uh, by this pandemic. And, you know, to, to see the stories from the front line from somebody who's out there doing it uh, during this crisis. Uh, and, you know, the stories are, are really important. They're really, they're, 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 you know, they're crazy sometimes. There's some of the stories that are in here. I do appreciate you sharing those with us. And for everybody else that's out there, please, please take a look at it. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a thick book. It's like, it's a quick read. It's behind the mask untold stories of EMS and a paramet and, and a pandemic. And, you know, also David, thank you so much for serving the communities that you serve and, and spending time out there, um, you, you know, serving, serving everybody and, and take care of yourself and, and keep up the good work. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. And, you know, I, I felt that it was a very important story to share uh, David's book because, again, it, it's telling the stories of the people that are on front lines. And sometimes some of us that are up in the EOCs, you know, in the comfortable place of air conditioning and coffee, um, we forget what the guys and the gals that are out there on the front lines that are doing. And um, taking a step back and reading what's going on, the stories from the front lines is always important. You know, I know a lot of you out there listen to this to uh to the show are still frontline uh, emts paramedics firefighters police officers i do appreciate everything that you guys are doing and i know that you guys are still keeping our are you guys are the glue guys and gals I remember from new york guys kind of covers everything are the glue that keeps us together keeps our community safe keeps us going forward so until next week hey listen don't forget please check us out on facebook linkedin youtube um instagram uh twitter Follow us, right, and and engage with us, and also uh, share this information with your friends, family, those that would be interested in this in the podcast, and go to your favorite podcast player and rate us, give us five stars, tell us everybody what you think. So until next week, stay safe and stay hydrated.